Hello, No Code Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my No Code Story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. I'm so thrilled to share this story the same week that our guest launched his second book. Today is all about bootstrapping, finding your audience, and more importantly, finding a problem worth solving for your audience. We have a wide-ranging conversation that starts with entrepreneurial failures and somehow ends with us discussing Bollywood actor Shah Rukh Khan. My guest today is Arvid Kahl. Arvid is an engineer, entrepreneur, and has most recently morphed into a world-class writer. His latest experiment is writing a book in public. His new book, The Embedded Entrepreneur, is an audience-driven product where he has collaborated with hundreds of alpha readers. If you're an entrepreneur looking to break into a new audience or trying to find your audience, Arvid's the guy for you. Check it out. It starts with the audience and it starts with other people. It starts with where people already are. So you go into their communities and you listen. I think that's the shortcut. The shortcut is to show up and just shut up. What I would like to see is that that the no-code concept of of consistent and well-defined interoperability would be applied to more tools in any space. The idea is to have feedback loops at every single stage from your first conceptual idea of how you want to help the people you chose to empower to the final product anywhere in between keeping tight feedback loops with people that's just really how businesses stay in touch with reality and once you're done listening to this story go ahead and pick up a copy of the embedded entrepreneur on amazon or gumroad links are in the show notes i started taking action within the first 10 minutes of reading the book are you ready let's get into it here's my conversation with arvid Hi, I'm Abid Khan, and this is my no-code story. All right, Arvid, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've been waiting for this moment for a while, and I want to start by, first of all, thanking you for your flexibility. I know we'd scheduled this for a few weeks uh, prior to when we were recording now, it's kind of the end of April, but you were kind enough to give me another slot because I was really reeling from the second shot of the vaccine and wasn't able to make that time. So first of all, I want to thank you for being a genuine person. And it's hard to find that these days and being flexible with your time. But really, welcome on the show. Thank you so much. And and don't you worry, like individual stuff is so important right now that everybody gets everything figured out in their lives. I'm absolutely glad to have waited for a couple of weeks to get you healthy again. I'd rather have you healthy, you know, <laughs> and a bit later than uh, trying to deal with like medical situations just to make an appointment or make a deadline. I'm not a deadline person to begin with. Right? I try to schedule my whole life and everything I do right now, having sold a business in the past, not really needing to like do stuff um, that critically anymore. I try to have really soft deadlines and do things when they happen. And when they don't happen, well, then maybe they happen later. So it fits perfectly with my um, schedule as well. I try to have a very minimal schedule to begin with. So everything is perfectly fine. I'm really glad to be on and I'm super looking forward to the conversation today. 
Awesome. As am I. We start usually by talking about people's stories. And I want you to give our audience a flavor for not only your story, because people have followed you since the Feedback Panda days, for sure, but also maybe give us a few nuggets from the past that you feel contributed to the Feedback Panda journey. Oh, wow. Well, the, the first and, and major thing I think is that I had a lot of interesting failures in the past. So out of all the things that I could talk about that were great, I choose none of them and would rather talk about the things that weren't so great because in the end you learn the most from things that you try and they don't work right it's like you, you can it's, it's like verifying a theory you you cannot verify a theory as much as you try you can always find more examples that validate a theory that are proving it but you only need to find one counter example to invalidate the whole thing right so you don't really learn much from adding more things that are in accordance with what you already know you learn the most things from things that just surprisingly don't work so in my experiences i live in germany um in berlin here and i i founded a couple of companies here with friends and acquaintances in the city and a number of them were aspirational we were trying to build a SaaS based marketplace for local food didn't work and we were trying to build a little tool for embedded photojournalists to upload their data to to multiple um, pr press agencies just for the photos to, to monetize them didn't work either and the great thing about all of these experiences was that in retrospect it's actually quite interesting to analyze the experience and figure out why it didn't work or what we could have done maybe to make the chances for it to work higher and just increase those chances. So the nuggets here are that in both cases of these particular examples, the local food marketplace in Berlin and the photojournalism software, we really did not talk to our audience. Neither did we even figure out really who our audience was. And that's that's my biggest learning in all this that led to building an audience focused and an audience driven business in the future is that we completely neglected building feedback cycles into the whole business experience. Like the local food marketplace, you can imagine Berlin is a metropolis, three and a half million people or something. And there's a lot of farmers outside of the city surrounding it that produce lots of meat and eggs and all kinds of things that they want to sell into the city. But it's hard to sell into a big city like this. You need logistics chains and you need to figure out where to go, which markets to visit to sell your stuff. And that was always kind of hard for those farmers, we thought, because we didn't really ask them. We just assumed it was hard. First big mistake, right? And then on the other side, we thought, oh, there's so many foodies and hipsters in the city. They probably would really love to have this food from outside the city. We assumed, didn't really talk to them. We just thought, okay, there's a lot of farmers coming into the city, selling in these little local food markets. And there's a lot of people with a lot of beards and stuff hanging out there. Must be this kind of clientele. But we never really talked to people. So we we sat down and built this marketplace product where farmers could put in their, their inventory and show people to which markets in the city they go. And then people could go there or order from them online. And we, we built a product that we didn't validate. And it was a big, big, deal because we spent six months as a team of three to build this on our own dime, right? And then we, we got some funding from the European Union being essentially a smart city project. We got some some money there, which was not really wasted, but it also didn't lead anywhere because the business business fizzled out at some point. It just didn't work. So a big problem. Didn't talk to the audience, didn't figure out what they needed, didn't know. We didn't even know like what technical skills the farmers had. We just assumed they had a computer and they would be able to sit in front of it for a couple hours a day. In reality, not going to happen, right? Farmers, they don't have time to sit in front of the computer. They sit in the tractor 
and they they do farmer stuff obviously yeah. it's their job yeah. or they drive from city to city trying to sell their stuff so a lot of validation that we didn't do and the other project was just the same we we had a photojournalist as a co-founder so we thought he knew exactly what was going on and he thought so too and didn't ask anybody about it and in the end we had like one or two customers which was not enough to actually finance the business so it fizzled out too it didn't do much marketing next big mistake we made a lot of mistakes but that's the good thing being able to have these little projects and fail at them and learn what doesn't work and why is essentially stair-stepping into a more successful situation and having done this and that was around probably 2014 15 16 around that time after that i spent a lot of time reading up on people who had successfully built businesses like this before that i didn't really read many books about it i may have read I, I don't i don't think i read any startup related book at that point maybe tim ferris books because that's that was big into tim ferris at that time yeah, listening yeah. to his podcast and the tools of titans and all these interviews but that was by people who were super successful it wasn't by people who just like me were just starting out to build a business it was by stars athletes and all these extremely successful people which had a lot of interesting things to say but none of that really applied to my work, right? So I, I wasn't in the right mindset. But after that, I started listening to podcasts in the indie hacker founder space. And I started reading books like The 4-Hour Workweek and Built to Sell and The E-Myth, like books that actually meaningful, meaningfully impact the, the path of an entrepreneur. And I consumed that while I was essentially an employee. I was working for a company in, in Hamburg here in Germany, and I was reading and listening to podcasts on my commute there back and forth. It was a couple hours a day, got a lot of reading done. And all of that, the combined, the knowledge that I got from re reading and consuming industry-specific podcasts and books, plus the failures that I had in the space before, kind of accumulated into some sort of framework that I had in my mind, which then allowed me to source interesting problems for validated audiences right i flipped the script i flipped from i have a cool idea i'm gonna build this which we had before into okay if we want to build something meaningful we first have to figure out who are we going to help with this or who do we want to help to begin with what problems do they have how can we help them with those problems what products could be built for those specific problems and then how can we build a business like a repeatable system of selling this to people out of there and feedback panda is a result of this right we, we were danielle and i my, my girlfriend and i we were at the right stage she was an online teacher she really needed help with administrative stuff she con conceptualized this product that she wanted to have and i built it and we built it together the business and the product because we knew there was thousands of teachers like Danielle right there out there waiting for a product like this literally complaining about feedback multiple times a day right so we we were very focused on validating this before we ever did any coding or marketing or pre-sales or whatever didn't even think about this until we knew that there was a big enough market big enough for us small enough not to attract too much competition you know and to build this product and then we built up the business within two years we built it as a bootstrap business financing it ourselves to a $55,000 MRR monthly recurring revenue business um, and then we sold it to a private equity company successfully for what I'm allowed to say is a life-changing amount of money. And after that, I just started writing all these experiences that I had before that were on my mind. I just really put them onto paper and that turned out to be my next business. Funny enough, because in, in some way, 
all of that before was kind of code based, right? It was building a, a SaaS yeah. product from, yeah. from my experience as a software engineer. That's, that's kind of what I always was. My first job was a software engineer. I took that and built a software product, but now that I'm not really that anymore or not alone, not, not just a software engineer, I essentially building a product or multiple products at the same time. Info products, which is my books, right? The, the books that I'm writing, these are info products, stuff that I that I sell to people who are interested in the knowledge. Then my blog, which is an ongoing media product, which essentially is a WordPress instance, which I consider to be a no-code tool, to, to, by the way, but people have different opinions on this. <laughs> Anyhow, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I also have another SaaS, which I built as a, as a code-based solution, permanent link, which is helping authors like myself to put links in their books, in their inf into their info products and blogs that don't expire. I, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to really diversify what I'm doing, because I, if there's one thing that I figured out after running a SaaS business for 24 seven for two years, if all of your wealth is essentially limited to the business that you're running right now that you own, that you are alone responsible for, then that's a lot of risk. So I'm trying to diversify this, which is also one of the reasons that we sold, right? We had this gigantic business that was worth millions, but it was just the two of us that ran it every single day. And if one of us had gotten sick, if I had gotten sick and there was a, a problem with the code, nobody would have been able to repair it or, or fix it. So that was a lot of risk. So right now I'm really trying to diversify everything I do, but then again, keep it all in, in some sort of cohesive shape, right? The books support... The SaaS, the SaaS supports the books, the blog generates content for the future book. And, the, you know, it's, it's all kind of a flywheel of interconnected things, which is what Daniel Vassalo has been talking about as this portfolio of many small bets. And I'm trying to go into the exact same direction because diversification is just stabilizing your life. And that's kind of where I'm going. At. And that's where I'm at at the moment, right? I'm, I'm just releasing my second book, which is all about... And it's called the embedded entrepreneur. It's about mm -hmm. embedding yourself in communities and then finding the things that people need, building them and building an audience and a following at the same time. That's really what it is. So that's also what I'm doing. Like I'm literally in the middle of the indie hackers community, figuring out what people need help with. And that's essentially audience building and understanding how to find a good niche and how to help them with a the problem. And then I'm writing a book about it. So essentially um, like Zero to Sold, my first book is about the Feedback Panel journey. The Embedded Entrepreneur is about my writing journey, which includes Zero to Sold and the Embedded Entrepreneur itself. So I'm always trying to do something that reflects what I've just done before. And, and that's kind of where I'm at at this moment. What an interesting journey. And there's so much to unpack here, really. So your solution statement really starts with the audience and building mm -hmm. an audience first. But then it's not just about the audience, it's also about finding a problem set that you have the ability to solve that is actually a need within that particular community or that particular audience. And then beyond that, it's also being part of a market that's, like you put it, not too big where you know there's too much competition, but at the same time, not too small where you know people would just ignore your product. Are there any shortcuts that you've uncovered to finding the intersection of those three. A methodical approach. I think that's usually um, as shortcutty as it gets, because I don't think there's there's, there's a shortcut in, in success other than consistency. Like showing up every single day, figuring out things methodically, that that's the way to do it, right? And it, it doesn't have to be years of observation and, and analysis or research. That kind of analysis paralysis is always a problem, right? So you have to start acting at some point. But having a framework 
from which to operate, I think that's the shortcut. And then meticulously executing it, I think. So when, when it comes to audience, and I, I, I you, you just really condensed what I was going on tangents about for a couple minutes into a one sentence, so thank you for that. Like having an, a validated audience, finding their critical problem, and then building a solution that fits into their workflow. These kind of are the three initial pillars of building a meaningful product, right? That that can turn into a business. And it starts with the audience and it starts with other people. It starts with where people already are. So you go into their communities and you listen. I think that's the shortcut. The shortcut is to show up and just shut up, you know, and really listen to what people have to say. And go, going in there every single day, if you let's let's say you you have this couple of Facebook groups, right? For the online teacher space that Danielle and I were part of, yeah. there were Facebook groups for these these particular teachers, and there was thousands of people in there. So if you go into one of these groups today, trying to figure out how you can build something for them, well, you join. If you can, if you if you if you have to be invited, you have to talk to the administrators first to get you in there. But you just join, and then you shut up because. To, to get the lay of the land, you really have to listen to how people communicate. You have to learn their language and you have to understand what people talk about and what people don't talk about. In almost all communities, you're not allowed to do any kind of advertisement for your own thing, essentially, particularly on Reddit where it's super strict, but even yeah. on Facebook and maybe, maybe on LinkedIn as well, although that's more like a business community where people don't have a problem talking about businesses, but in social networks in general, if you talk about your thing and you try to push it, you're going to be kicked out quite soon. So you just listen and you see how people talk about products. Do they recommend them to each other or do they talk about their experiences with products? There's slight differences there. Do they ask for help with products or how do people talk about this? And then you listen to what they talk about and you essentially keep a tap. You keep a tap on how often they talk about this one particular problem and how how intensely do they talk about this particular problem and you just go in there every day you look at what happened over the last day if it's a community that you can kind of sensibly do this otherwise you need to find tools that summarize this for you and then you really figure out what are the critical things that people talk about are these commonly held problems or are these just things that happen to a couple people you know like what are the nuisances what are the actual critical problems and th there's an approach to this and that's kind of why I've been writing my second book because people have asked me how to do this and in, in, in Zero to Sold I've kind of tackled it more from an abstract perspective but now I've really went into the pragmatic approach on how to really do it within the community so you listen and then you have a list and that list is a guide to what you then can actually build and even then you don't stop communicating with people you talk to people about like imagine you have found a critical problem. Let's use the feedback kind of example. You found feedback, student feedback, right? Instead of just building something, you talk to somebody who actually has this problem and you have them tell you, well, how do they tackle it? How do you solve for this, right? You have to write student feedback for two hours every day. Okay, do you just use the... the the mask or the, the little text field that's in your in your browser or do you use a, like an external work document where you type it and or copy and paste stuff just ask them how they deal with it and then they will tell you how they use existing solutions either actual competitors or competitive alternatives such as word or excel which are essentially like any spreadsheet is a competitive alternative to a SaaS. right mm -hmm. people could just build it themselves in that little spreadsheet or airtable or whatever is the spreadsheet du jour right doesn't really matter people can will try to solve their problems using the kind of default tools that they know and that's word documents text text documents or spreadsheets essentially so 
are people already using something like this, which is usually a good sign, because if they have a spreadsheet going, then you know that you can actually normalize the data in some capacity, right? If they have tables and stuff, great. They're probably going to want that in a SaaS, essentially, where that makes it yep. even easier to use. Yep. So you look for these kind of opportunities, and then you keep talking to people while you build this prototype, while you build the solution. And that leads you to, first off, your first customers, your first prospects at least, or your first beta users that can help you build a product that they can actually use. And it also establishes you as an expert in the community, which will help you with sales later, with marketing, or even just getting people to believe you when you tell them, hey, I built this for you, right? Because if you come into a community and you immediately start throwing the link to your product in there, hey, I built this for you, well, are they really going to believe you? Or do they just hear, hey, I built this, so you pay me, right? And that's a difference there. So by establishing yourself within a community as a renowned and reputable expert, you also increase the chances of your product being accepted and people talking about it in a positive manner. That's kind of later down the road, but everything is centered in communities. Everything is centered in where your audience already is. And if you can leverage that, then the chances of your business and your idea being successful are much higher than if you just spend six months with a team of three in an office in Berlin and don't talk to anybody. I mean, no wonder we didn't succeed with this product. Like, how could we have? Like, we would have. It would have been a miracle if we had hit and understood the market right where it was at this point and where we would need to be with our product, which we didn't, obviously, because we never tried to fit it all together. We just assumed we knew back then. And that was a big mistake. So what I'm doing right now, whenever I do something, I, I'm trying to put it out there as fast as I can, which I did with my book. Like over the last couple months, 500 people were essentially alpha reading my book. I had thousands of comments on the first, second, and third draft of my book. And I changed it a lot of times during this, yeah, this quarter, the initial quarter of, of 2021 where I wrote the, the initial draft because people just told me, hey, I don't get this. I don't understand what this means. And if I had written my book in isolation and had released it, then they would read it and not recommend it. So I, I may have sold one book, but if I write a recommendable book, I'm probably going to sell 10 just from that initial sale because that person then tells it to nine of their friends. right? Oh, yeah. So the, the idea is to have feedback loops on, at every single stage from your first conceptual idea of how you want to help the people you chose to empower to the final product anywhere in between keeping tight feedback loops with people that's just really how businesses stay in touch with reality the journey that you're embarking on now with the embedded entrepreneur is interesting because you're essentially writing in public to a certain extent and you're getting input on the fly i want to dig into all of that but in terms of framing the discussion i want to start with feedback panda then i want to dig mm -hmm. into the books and then i want to talk about permanent link as well sure. and at the yeah. end maybe if we have some time there are some questions from the audience that came in that i want to put in front of you as well absolutely so let's talk about feedback panda for a second because i i resonated with your journey so much and as a personal story my wife's a speech therapist and she spent a lot of years working with people in different age groups in the field. And as she was helping them, one of her biggest problems was she would come home and she would spend a bunch of time documenting what she did during the day. And the first thing that, and I've worked in you know SaaS organizations all my life, and the first thing that I could point to straight away was that the processes are so inefficient. To a large extent, you know, 
even today in 2021, in certain business environments in that space, the documentation is done on paper. Yeah. Still in 2021. It's, it's incredible. That's the extent to which there's potential for, you know, for abdicating some of the pain that people are going through. But at the same time, I like the teacher space because uh, you're not really at the intersection of regulation. Yeah. And I would see that as an advantage mm -hmm. because anything to do with the healthcare space, you need to not only have a good solution to the problem, but you also need to be prepared for extraneous elements. So as part of the Feedback Panda journey, I really resonated with you know how you guys came up with a solution to the problem. And it really helped that Danielle was already embedded in the community. And you yeah. talked about you know this curve that you kind of go through getting embedded into a new community. And I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of contributing uh, in a methodical manner, but also contributing on an ongoing basis and consistency yes. being the key yeah. to really building your name. And it, it kind of resonates with how I started the no-code journey, uh, so to speak, and started getting embedded in the no-code community in 2021. And the reason, one of the reasons I have the podcast is that it forces me to show up week after week. Yep. Hopefully add some value to, to people as we go along. Now, is there is there something specific in the Feedback Panda journey that you would have done differently were you doing it today? And and also, is there a no-code flavor to this? Because I know you built the SaaS uh, model from the ground up. You used, uh, was it Google Cloud that you were hosted on? And and then, uh, you know, you built all the features. But is there a no-code element to this that you would do differently? And are there other things that you would have done differently? Well, I, I would have loved for um, the educational institutions that we supported, like these Chinese online schools where we essentially integrated the product to be more open to integrations. Because essentially we integrated the browser extension into their school's portal without them technically agreeing to this because you know like they they offer a browser website or a website-based browser application so you can use an ad blocker you can use like a, a grammarly or something to, right. to make writing easy and feedback panda was just one additional of these tools but it would have been wonderful if they had some some sort of either like a sapier integration or an api integration that we could then latch our product into and make this whole process easier so one of the the, the things that I, I certainly hope that the industry that the, both the education or any kind of documentation based or industry that has documentation needs, like what you said, medicine has this, I think like education has this legal requirements, everybody has documentation processes, construction has a lot of documentation too. You can essentially look into any industry and there's a documentation process that is done on paper for no reason. It's super complicated for no apparent reason either other than regulation that's imposed for reasons that are maybe outdated, you know, there's all these layers, but it would be nice if there was more interoperability between the tools and the space. And that's the one thing that I see no code really going for because you don't have a choice. And if you deal with no code, you need to provide an interoperable product. If you build a no code product, let, yep. let's say the people at, at Airtable or Bubble or something, they need to have interoperability right built into their products because otherwise they would resort to be code tools in the end anyway. Right? If people needed to add custom code at all points, well, then essentially you're not looking at a no-code tool anymore. So what I would like to see is that, that the no-code concept of, of consistent and well-defined interoperability would be applied to more tools in any space. That's something I would build into a Feedback Panda. Now that I know more about the no-code field or more about the no-code movement, I probably would build uh, not an API, but a Sapier integration a new student signed up, or you just taught a new course, or you wrote a new report, 
well, that's a zap, right? And maybe you can use it to um, automatically fire up something in your, your own bookkeeping system where you track how many uh, your payments or something. You have a little Google sheet somewhere that tracks how many lessons you taught somewhere. That would be really cool to offer with a, with a tool such as this. Or you maybe you get the video transcript of the lesson you just taught and you put it somewhere and you check it later or something. I don't really know the, the use cases, but that's the good thing about these integrations. I don't need to know the use cases. People will come up with the use cases, right? So that's something that I would definitely build into a B2C product or B2BC, a kind of B2 a prosumer product that we had right. where people could just really flexibly use the data that we provide for their own purposes. And it's a big deal that I didn't consider then, and I would definitely consider it now. And to a certain extent, like you say, no-code tech kind of forces these types of interoperability measures to be put in place from day yes. one. But at the same time, does it kind of absolve the solution of the potential impact you may have? Because anyone could fire up a similar type of uh, product using the same t kind of integration. So how do you mm -hmm. then, in a no-code environment, differentiate what you're building versus everything else that's out there? I think with any business that is successful where other businesses are not, it really boils down to the founder understanding the intricacies and complexities of a problem on a level that cannot be copied, right? If you if you were to talk to me about, I don't know, bootstrapping or self-publishing books, I am now at a level, a level where I really understand this because I've failed horribly a lot in the space. I tried a lot of things, didn't work, tried more things, didn't work. Some of them worked, some worked better, some worse. I've I've seen a lot. I, I want to stay humble and not consider myself an expert, but compared to the novices in the space, I might just as well say that my level of expertise is a little bit higher than theirs. So if I were to build something, my innate understanding of the space, of the competition, of the alternatives, of, of existing solutions, existing attempts at solving this that failed horribly, my insights probably would allow me to build a product that could outlive clones or copies or the, the kind of copycat competition just because I know where I'm going. You know, it's, it's this kind of thing. People always talk about, oh, what happens if people clone my idea? And I think it's, it's very strongly also a, a part of the no-code space because you can so quickly build a clone. Of something right we have all these tutorials in the space with our oh, built an uber clone in yep. in like uh, 20 steps or here's a tutorial for the next tinder great but then again tinder is already out there right try competing with them and their marketing engine and their their engineering team and all that stuff probably not going to happen because they have the expertise in all on all different levels and if you go back to yeah let's say uber right which which is one of the the most cloned apps i guess because it has the map and the little things yeah and i, I really love to see these things because i just love people building stuff no matter what it is and necessarily it doesn't necessarily have to be successful either just like people building things but if you look at at Uber, like they have internally solved the uh, the harness problem, which is finding drivers to work for you, and finding customers for those drivers. Those are the hard problems. It's not building the tool that's the hard problem, right? The hard problem is the business of actually connecting people who need to go from A to B with people who can put them, get them there. And I think for any business, that is the actual problem. It's solving the business problem behind the technical side. Now that's that's hard, and for us. But one of the things that we had to build to actually solve this problem of writing efficient feedback was to build a templating system that allowed for two genders 
to quickly use for one text and be used in two genders, right? Today, we taught your son, what's his right. name? These things, he did a great job. This text needs to immediately exist for today. We taught your daughter, what's her name? She did a great job. And even changing pronouns in text is actually a complicated issue. I had to build a machine learning system that took me 48 hours to actually train on every iteration to reliably translate male to female and female to male pronouns. It's not just a text substitution problem. This is actually a st statistical machine translation problem. So you yep. need to have this kind of expertise in surprisingly deep mathematical fields to solve these business problems that appear quite shallow on the surface. Just write the text, right? But it's not. So if you are somebody, and that's that's kind of why I'm, why I'm going with this, that really cares about a certain space, and you really care about the people in the space and how you can help them solve their problem, then you will have this vision for the business, this kind of outlook on what it needs to be and what it needs to solve that cannot be copied without substantial resources. And to an extent, what you were saying about Uber, they're finding their drivers and finding their writers. It's actually finding the audience, uh, back to the mm -hmm. earlier point we were talking yeah. about. And your audience is your moat in these types of things where yes. they could be your differentiation. They could be how you stay ahead of your competition as well. And yeah. I, I'm really starting to see building an audience as a first step, You know, obviously credit and credit to you and some of the work that you've been doing as well. People are thinking about this more and more these days. Tell me about the Zero to Sold uh, book. I love the book, by the way. I picked it up uh, in advance Thank of you. talking to you here. And I really like how you've laid things out in a step-by-step -step fashion. For someone that's just starting out, I think it drops the barrier a little bit to actually adopt and implement some of the, some of the strategies that you've outlined in the book. But tell me about what is different in the embedded entrepreneur versus zero to sold. I think we talked about the community aspect. Maybe talk about that, but also how you're writing the book being completely different this time around. Mm -hmm. Well, first, thank you for, for the kind words. It's always appreciated. You're a reader and enjoy the work. Well, the thing is, when I wrote first Zero to Sold initially, I didn't really write a book. I wrote blog posts every week. When we when we sold the business back in, in 2019, all of a sudden from 24-7 building a SaaS, I fell into this void of not knowing what to do with my life because somebody else was operating my business and I didn't have any job anymore. Right? I, I didn't need a job at that point or I guess ever again, but I didn't have anything to do. I can only play so many hours of World of Warcraft is what I noticed. Like I tried, <laughs> I tried to, to play for two weeks straight and it just gave up. Some people would disagree with you, but. <laughs> Honestly, my, my 2008 self would also disagree with you because that's all I did back then. And I thought I could go back to that, but I couldn't because all of a sudden, I back back in, in uh, 2008, I, I didn't really have much passion for anything other than playing online games with people that, that I enjoyed hanging out with, which was a community. Not a surprising thing that you can find passion in a community of like-minded people. That's how communities work. But now, after running a business that served thousands of people and actually impacted their life in a positive way, that was my drive. That was where my passion and my motivation came from. And I had just sold that to somebody else. I didn't have it anymore. So I tried going back to World of Warcraft, but it was not the same. The passion that I had felt just weeks earlier was inaccessible to me through just gaming anymore, which is kind of sad for a person that loves to game, because if gaming isn't fun anymore, well, what is? Turns out it's actually sharing and teaching, because that's what I tr had figured out, always wanted to do, but it was kind of 
pressed for time while running the business, I couldn't really share that much because I needed to build and market and customer service and that stuff. But the moment I was done and we sold the business and we had transitioned it over to the, the company that acquired us or the business, I guess, I had all this time. So what I did was taking all my knowledge that I had and I tried to categorize it, try to really like, find blog post titles, essentially was my first step. Talk about customer service and how to optimize for that. Talk to how to build a resilient system and how to how to talk to customers and how to get customers and how to deal with mental health issues. And I had this list of hundreds of blog post titles. So I thought, okay, now I have this list, might just as well start writing. So I took a couple of days and started writing and I set up a blog at thebootstrapfounder.com because I thought I'm going to talk about things that are interesting for bootstrap founders. And then I started posting my articles and started sharing them on Twitter. And at that point I had like 400 followers that I had gathered over 10 years on Twitter which is really not that many. And I really had never really built an audience. I just was connected with a couple of people from the founder space, a couple of my old friends from like from school and stuff. And, and you know, let's just Twitter as you use it if you don't use it for audience building. And I started sharing this. And to keep myself accountable, I thought, hey, I, I really, if I want to continue doing this for a while, I need to force myself to write every week. So I started a newsletter and put it out there. And then I had my first subscriber and all of a sudden I was like, yeah, better start writing every week or I'll still be disappointed. So ever since then, and I think I'm at episode 82 at this point. So my, my 82nd week of mm -hmm. writing the newsletter and, and releasing a podcast, which is an additional um, accountability thing that I did. I've just been writing about one topic every week. So 30 or 40 weeks in, like, or now it must've been maybe 20 weeks. I noticed that people really, really enjoyed reading this. I, I got a lot of followers on Twitter because I was sharing the post every week and I was talking to the people that commented on it and engaged with them quite a bit. Because like, if you don't have many followers, the best way to find followers is to engage with people while they already are having a conversation. So that's what I did. I shared my stuff there. I gave them a little insights from what I had experienced before. And I started to just really, really ramp up my own follower count. and but blog posts on the blog and somebody told me, Hey, this is really cool. Can you not look at it? It kind of seems like it's all connected, but all these topics seem so random. So I figured out, okay, this is true. I've been writing about customer service one week and about mental health, the other one, and about how to start a business, the next one, how to sell a business to fourth. So should I maybe try to find some order in this? And then I sat down and I really just tried to put an outline as you, as you would have a table of contents and, order these things and what i figured out is that i actually in my mind had constructed half of a book already i was talking about the preparation stage the stability stage the um the survival stage that comes in between those and then finally the growth or the sales stage whatever you do and all of these articles fit in one of those four pretty easily and so i, I turned it into a compendium essentially what i did is I, I took all my blog post titles that i hadn't finished yet put them into this order and in, into this kind of um, outline as well and just wrote a paragraph for each that would i i would want to see as a as an actual chapter later in the book and i released this half finished compendium to my to my audience i put it on my website it's still there it's still available it's like twenty five thousand words or something like a quarter of a book or half of a book and i just put it out there and people really liked it because first off it's free, right? It's a free guide to bootstrapping done by somebody who had just successfully sold a business. That is usually quite helpful. And it was a lot of content and it contextualized all the blog posts that I had written prior. And then somebody told me, hey, I would pay for, for a printed version of this. If I could print this as a PDF, I'd pay you $10. So, so I thought, ah, oh, interesting. Maybe I should actually turn this into a written book. 
and then I did this. I spent another month writing the, the remaining um, chapters, kind of got an editor involved, got a proofreader involved, and then I released the book in June 2020, and it was an immediate smashing success in my community, which had just been waiting to give back to me. Because I've been sharing and sharing and sharing, never asking for anything for half a year or even more. I think it must have been nine months at that point. And then people really, really wanted to help me back to compensate me for everything I'd given. And I think I sold like 350 copies my first day, a thousand copies in the first two weeks. It was crazy. Wow. Really good, but really crazy. So from that, I, I learned a lot about feedback in the community and how people really want to reciprocate. And people talk to me about the book. They told me, hey, I really, really love the structure. I love this part. That's where I am at right now. So I'm focusing on this. And hey, how, how does this work? And I got a lot of feedback on the audience finding and the problem discovery part that I thought, okay, if I'm ever going to do anything further when it comes to writing a book, I'm probably going to zoom into this initial part even more. Because that's kind of what the book starts out with, right? I start talking about tribes and niche and audience and then how to find it, how to talk to people. And even though the, the first half of the book is the one that the first out of these four phases, it's already like heavily focused on the beginning part of building a business, it's still not enough. So I needed to zoom in even more into the audience and understanding who I want to serve, how I can serve them, how I can find out more about their problems and, and, and that kind of thing. And then talk about building your own audience, building a brand about yourself as a founder, about your business, which are two different things that often maybe overlap, but they, they are distinct. And how essentially how to build an audience, how to engage with people, how to help them, how to empower them, how to share interesting content with them. And that's that's kind of what I took as goalposts for my next book for The Embedded Entrepreneur, which was initially supposed to be called Audience First. That was my initial name for the book. Uh -huh. And okay. and when I when I talked to people about Audience First, they they told me, hey, um, what you are talking about when you, you talk about audience first, which is essentially putting the audience first, right? Involving them in anything, starting with where are their communities? How can I help them? What problems do they have? That's not what I understand as audience first. Many people would tell me this. Many people would tell me that audience first to me means you build an audience and then you sell them a product, right? And that's, that's kind of a very naive approach to audience first, but it's what most people already understand it as. Hence the rename, because I got into a Twitter discussion of epic proportions a couple months ago about this term. And lots of people told me, hey, if you sold me this book with the title audience first, and it's not my understanding of audience first, I'd be disappointed. And if my future audience, my future readers tell me that this title does not correlate with what I'm writing about, well, then I'm changing my title, right? This is feedback that is super helpful. So I turn it from this audience first focus, which is not really all that I wanted to write about, into the embedded entrepreneur, because of the embedded part, this go into a community and then build a product and a business from in there, that's much more interesting to me. So that's where the name change came from. That itself was an audience-driven mechanic, right? My audience told me, hey, this book about audience first is not about audience first. So I changed it. And ever since then, I try to really, really focus on this customer or future prospective customer feedback. So I took my first draft. I wrote it from January 1st to January 31st. It's the first draft of the book happened in a month. I wrote every day, every single day, I wrote a chapter essentially, or one or more chapters because I really wanted to get the draft done. I kind of, I was dragging my heels a bit, you know, like one of these, these big problems when you've written a successful book 
or done anything successful to be to begin with is that your next thing better also be successful like people expect it or you and your own imposter syndrome kind of make up the story how people expect you to be successful so I was kind of okay right let's just wait with the next one this one is still doing fine it's probably not a good idea and, and when when the new year hit I, I said to myself I'm gonna start this I, I I committed to writing one book every year and if I don't start now then June is gonna be there and my book won't be finished that was kind of my internal logic so I, I wrote the first draft and then I immediately involved hundreds of people I said this time I'm not gonna write it all by myself this time I'm, I'm gonna share this with people that actually want to see the book come to fruition, right? With, with Zero to Sold, it just happened as blog posts that people give gave me feedback, feedback on one blog post at a time. This time I wanted people to give me feedback on the whole book. So I found a tool called Help This Book, which is done by Rob Fitzpatrick, the author of The Mom Test, Devin Hunt, a very capable and skilled software engineer. And they wrote the, the workshop survival guide this book they wrote together and ever since since then they've been working together and they created help this book which is essentially a beta reading platform for books that that are done in public essentially so i submitted my first draft i invited people through an email list uh, onto this project and then every month or every couple of weeks or so i would take their input and would massage it into the draft and release a new version of the draft invite more people so I started with like 50 people for the first draft and then invited another 50, another 50 into the second one, another 100, another 100 into the third one. And that's how every new draft got a new set of eyes and people just made the book better for me. And then just yesterday, I guess, I finished or I got I got back the, the proofread from a professional proofreader, a professional editor. And just today I finished getting all those things into the book. So I'm quite literally just now done with the text of the book, like done, done for this version at least, right? And now I just have to get the illustrations and the cover and all of these things settled so I can start setting it up so it can be purchased at some point. But uh, the, the idea is to involve people as early as possible and as much as possible during every single step of the product. And that's what I've been doing with The Embedded Entrepreneur. That's amazing. So within four months, you have a fully vetted draft, not only by our audience, but also by a professional editor. And yeah. you're basically ready to almost ready to uh, launch it out to the public. And I, I would mm -hmm. think this is a good way to think about any project is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what what is the little thing that will move the needle yeah. today? that I can yep. do to tangibly get me to my goal. Because I can envision starting out in January, there was probably a little bit of dragging your feet even at the initial stages of that. But then probably soon it kind of snowballed into what's a really well-received book, even by the folks that are talking about it now on, yep. on Twitter. And you kind of have social engagement built into it. So this is really awesome stuff. Uh, and tell me how Permanent Link came about. Uh, is that, mm -hmm. I mean, talk about scratching your own itch. So <laughs> mm -hmm. doing that multiple times, it just shows that there are so many problems that people don't necessarily think about on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis that still need to be solved. And there's still an audience need for it. Yeah, so when I, I, I think that's just a serial entrepreneur. Like every serial entrepreneur will stumble onto something while they build their latest thing. And then once that latest thing is done, they will remember having stumbled onto this. And then that's going to be the next thing. You, I think you see this hilariously with Josh Pickford, uh, who founded Bear Metrics. Like mm -hmm. he sold Bear Metrics and 
he made a lot of money. I think he sold it for $4 million and as a didn't have much investment in it. So he, he made a cool two to three somewhat million dollars. And now he figured out, oh, it's kind of hard to actually invest all this money and deal with this. Like it set up like a, a wealth a supervision regiment. So now he's building maybe, maybe finance, which is a, a finance system for us, the people who are, are, are living in a digital world and want to deal with their, their money and their investments and their financial strategy in a way that doesn't involve the, the 18th century mechanics that our banks still operate on, right? Yeah. So he saw something that happened during his last project that he took into his next project. And you have this all over the place. Every serial entrepreneur does this, and I did the same. So when I published Zero to Soul, like a couple days after I published the ebook and the, the print book on Amazon and Gumroad, I started reporting broken links in the product. On Amazon, you can do this. You can go to any ebook and you can say, hey, this, this product has a broken link or has a typo in there. And if then is, there's enough people reporting this, they will actually flag your book, your product on Amazon to contain errors and you have to fix them upload the new version, they check for the errors and only then do they remove this big banner. This ebook contains, scary, contains errors, right? And you don't want that as an author. Yeah. So I thought, hey, how can I deal with this? And I looked at how other people dealt with this and essentially everybody sets up a server somewhere on their own domain to then point links to and then redirect those links to whatever destination that they want them actually to go, right? So. Uh, for me, it would be maybe avidkal.de slash barometrics when I want to link to barometrics instead of directly linking to barometrics, which could mm -hmm. move their domain. I link them to a domain that I control so I can redirect them to whatever future domain they might change to, which mostly happens with blog posts or social media profiles that rename themselves. Like that is where link rot, which is the official term, actually happens, right? Where links start decaying. And in any book, apparently there's been studies on this, 50% of the links break within the first two years of the book being out there. Maybe even the first year, depending on how recent those links are and how often they change. And I thought, hey, I, I have to solve this for myself. And ever the entrepreneur I am, I thought, hey, if I solve this for myself, might just as well solve it for other people too. So I built a little SaaS out of this where you can have your links either on permanent.link, my, my domain for the SaaS, or you can have your own custom domain. Where, I don't know, for me, that would be links.embeddedentrepreneur.com, right? And links.embeddedentrepreneur.com right. slash parametrics would then I could control that link and could uh, redirect it where, wherever. And I built a little feature that if a link breaks, first off, it, it, it notices that it automatically pulls the link. It checks it every, every couple hours to see if it's still there. And if it breaks, it sends me an email so I can react and automatically links to the latest version of the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, that probably have a copy of this. Oh, so that's interesting. Uh, you know, if there's a blog post out there, it's not just probable that they have a copy. Whenever somebody puts a link to something into permanent link, I inform the Wayback Machine that they should please take a snapshot of that website. And then they do, and then I link to that if it ever breaks. So essentially, I'm piggybacking on the Internet Archive, which is already there. It's just hard to link if you don't have the, the technical skill to set up your own redirection server. That's what I do for like 10 bucks a month or five bucks a month even. So for any author that wants it other than myself, but I really, I'm my biggest customer and not technically true. I now have a customer that has more links than I have on his book, but <laughs> you know, I am my first customer and I knew exactly what I needed because I needed it right there and then for my product and all the links in the embedded entrepreneur are going to be permanent links as well. 
So I have to keep it up, right? I need to maintain my service so my books work. And my books have a little link to permanent link in there if other authors are interested in links like this as well. It's kind of a flywheel effect, but it's totally one of these dog fooding problems. I needed it for myself. So I, I needed to actually build a product that I could use. That that makes so much sense. And and I, I really like how you're thinking about this for authors in general. So you abstract it out and then you start coming up with really creative solutions. Because if you're doing this for yourself, I would think chances of linking back automatically to a Wayback Machine page w would be very minimal. Yeah. Nobody does that for their own website. Nope, there are no solutions out there. Yeah, that nobody has solved this this way before. So this is this is really phenomenal, Arvid. I, 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 there are so many topics that I wanted to talk about that we we didn't have the time to today because I want to get to audience questions as well because we received a sure. bunch and and I really feel like this deserves a a, a part two of some sort. Yeah, I agree. We can dig into mental health and we can dig into more specifics about the embedded entrepreneur and how uh, entrepreneurs can manage the energy that they bring to you know day to day and so on. So there's so many topics that uh, I would love to get your take on. I know our audience would, mm -hmm. but for the sake of time today, I wanna get to some audience questions and I, I would appreciate it if you could answer this in sort of a rapid fire fashion, because uh, you know sure. I asked the audience, you know what's the first thing that you wanna ask Arvid? So along the same lines, yeah. what's the first response that comes to your mind for some of these, <laughs> okay. some of these questions? Oh, so uh, number one is, uh, we'll start off with something easy. So do you like the atmosphere in Berlin? And if so, why? Berlin is really cool. Like Berlin is a metropolis. There's a lot going on. It's a highly cultural city. It's a melting pot. For when you look at Germany, there is all of Germany and Berlin. Like these are two very distinct things. They're, everybody mixes. People speak English mostly in the city. Like if you walk on the street, the likelihood of somebody speaking German is almost the same as somebody speaking English. It's just nice. The only thing that at this point really sucks is the fact that I'm not leaving my apartment. Like Berlin is great for founders. It's, it's I guess, one of the most capitalized city when it comes to VC-funded startups, but there's a big bootstrapper scene here as well. There's an indie hackers meetup in Berlin and the people are really, really nice. There's a lot of co-working spaces. The, it's, it's nice outside. It's a very, uh, it's not a dense city. It's a very broad city you have a lot of different spaces yeah. is really cool but yeah the, the pandemic kind of makes it makes it hard to really enjoy at this point but it's, it's it's great for founders it's great for for anybody in the in the software space or stuff like that it's really cool awesome next one is about your book i think you answered this in part but how long did it take you to write your uh, first book zero to sold and did you have a full outline prior to actually sitting down to write it yeah, I didn't have the outline prior to, to when I, before the first half of the book was done, I didn't even know I was writing a book. So that was kind of, yeah, that just happened. But once I figured out that this could be a book, I outlined it immediately. Like I said, I tried to take the things that I had already written, put them into a shape that made sense, and then put the other things that I wanted to write, put them in there as placeholders, write this little paragraph that I would see the content of this to be, right? I hadn't written about due diligence at this point. So I just really said due diligence, the things to care about. And then I wrote like this little paragraph of in a due diligence phase, you have to look into this, 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 and this, and this. And I knew that at some point I would get into this and talk about each of these specific topics in detail. So my outline was mostly structural and then a hint of content. And I've done this with the embedded entrepreneur as well. I outlined like this, this these big four steps, audience discovery, finding out who you want to serve, then audience exploration, figuring out what they think about, what, what, where they are, how you can embed, then problem discovery, what are they talking about? How can I figure out how to do something about it? And audience building. 
How can I engage my own brand? How can I build something, become a reputable expert? These were the four things that I wanted to talk about. And then I started filling them with little, again, blog post-like titles. I, I went the same way, essentially. I compendiumified my, my outline and then wrote the bit by bit. If, if you were to talk about rules for Twitter growth, what, what mm. would be the number one thing that, that you would bring up? I, I have to conceptualize this three-pillared approach. One is engagement empowerment and valuable content in that order. Like if you're trying to build an audience, first you need to engage with people where they already are. Then you need to empower those that have even less reach than you. And then you need to provide valuable content in every inter interaction. Like go where people are having discussions, do what I call the audience audition, go to people that already have a large audience and just be helpful to them, to these people and try to get them to follow you because you're helpful to them. Then empower people by just sharing messages, celebrate founders that have success, help people find other experts that could help them, retweet, quote tweet, just spread the word, right? And then valuable content essentially is add meaningful content wherever you go. A good question is content on something is content, right? You don't have to write a blog post to create content. You can just really talk to somebody where they are and create maybe a new thought or lead a discussion into a different direction, content. It's already content and probably more valuable than you writing a blog post that nobody reads. So, you know, like it's empowerment and valuable content. Those would be the, the pillars. And I really talk a lot about this in the book. Like the last half of the book is about this kind of content creation. Yeah, and, and as I'm looking through these questions, I'm actually pretty amazed at how many you've already answered as we've been talking. So there's <laughs> questions about how to turn ideas into startups, questions about how was what was life like after selling Feedback Panda and how you spent the initial few days of you know doing nothing and so on. Uh, but then there's a, there's a couple uh, more that I want to end the podcast with. Uh, one mm. is, what is something different that you're doing with Permanent Link that you didn't do with Feedback Panda? So Permanent Link is a, it's almost a long-term business quite by, by design, right? The idea is for this to be something that really, really lasts a long time so people can reliably put their links into their content and know that it's gonna be there. So what I try to do with Permanent Link is to remove all kinds of dependency on other services that I could. I'm not integrating a complicated authentication system. People sign up with email and password, that's it. Right, it's it's well handled, but it's it's not integrating any other kind of system, and this kind of contradicts some of the advice I usually give, is which is like use an, an authentication system, but this applies to systems that are more B two C or B two B C, where you have people that want to log in with Facebook or Google stuff like that. For Permanent Link, it's super simple because I want to remove all the potential downtimes and maintenance windows that could happen somewhere out there. Right? I'm not integrating any fancy services for onboarding or, or other things. I try to keep it as simple as possible so that the business can as, run as reliably and honestly as hands-off as possible out there because I don't, just don't want to spend too much time on it. I don't want to do too much to deal with technical complexity. It's a simple service. It's never going to be a, I don't know, a brand building tool. It's just going to be for links that are supposed to work. I'm trying to really keep it super focused and super dense and remove all kinds of dependency. And I don't do much marketing for it either because I want all the marketing for the business to be word of mouth. And I want it to be people who really understand the business already because I want my marketers essentially to be the people that already use it. Because I need to convince authors to put links into their books that are supposed to last for decades. This is not going to be done with a funny video or an ad on Google. 
this needs an approach that is super focused on, on word of mouth. So that's kind of where I'm going with this. And honestly, again, this is not a product that needs to make money immediately. I have three paying customers. I have a solid $20 MRR at this point with permanent link. <laughs> If I paid for it myself, it probably would be 50 or something, but obviously I'm not paying for my own product. Maybe I should, but you know, it doesn't matter. At this point, this is an extension of all the small bets that I have. It's part of many of them. So if it makes money in the future, that would be wonderful, but it's not supposed to be the next unicorn. This can grow really slowly in the next couple um, months and it's perfectly fine with me, right? I'm not hunting customers at this moment. I'm not chasing growth goals or anything. It's just see where it goes it's going to stick around obviously because i need it so might might grow well but th there's not too much focus on that and it's heartening to see that even seasoned entrepreneurs need to start somewhere so <laughs> i think a lot of <laughs> yeah, a lot of us first-time <laughs> entrepreneurs will take heart in that fact um yeah. next one and then i have just one last one so next one is when are you coming to miami and people want to meet you in real life maybe more abstracting it out are you mm. uh, are you planning some kind of travel once things start to come back to some kind of normalcy and if so wh wh where do you want to go we have a lot of plans so first off we live in berlin right now but my, my girlfriend and i we want to relocate to canada which is going to make these trips to, to uh, the United States and the, the communities there much easier. But that's not going to happen during like lockdowns and, and pandemic restrictions. And we're not vaccinated yet because Germany is kind of slow on this. So we kind of defer all of all of these things until then. So next year is the answer to all of this. And I want to go back. I want to I want to be back at MicroConf. I want to be at the Founder Summit, all these interesting conferences that are just filled to the brim with founders that talk about bootstrapping and stuff. I want to go there and I want to be at the the meetups and the, the hangouts and all these things but that's that's something for a post-pandemic world and that has to wait for a couple more months at least yeah and, and then the last one is how did you become a Shah Rukh Khan fan and what's with <laughs> all of the SRK gifs in your replies first of he may be uh, the, the world's best actor <laughs> I don't know. I heard people say it. Honestly, I, I kind of fell into this from just from using funny gifts, and and he has he just has the most adorable face. I just such a such a wonderful person. And I, I watched a couple movies. And that was fun. So finding a, a good good dubbed or or uh, subtitled Bollywood movies. So that's kind of hard. But anyhow, it's just it's just a one of these these people that you look at them and you're instantly happy for some reason so i try to, to incorporate that into my equally joyful and happy life on twitter but yeah it's, it's i fell into this just really from finding his gifts that's that's where it came from and then i looked into it and watched a couple of movies and interviews and stuff and it just just clicked with me it's definitely some someone that a lot of people follow in india and abroad that could be a separate podcast in itself is <laughs> is shark yeah. the best actor or not i'm sure people have a lot to say about it <laughs> oh man yeah i, I no i, I don't want to don't want to open that kind of worms here he's, he's definitely great right let's just say that he's great and he's adorable and he's wonderful so <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say this was so much fun, Arvid. Thank you so yeah, much for absolutely. taking the time out. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. I know our audience would have gotten a lot out of this. I, I would really be stoked to have you back on and talk about your journey once you've released The Embedded Entrepreneur and uh, what some of the learnings are with the release, because that in itself is an act. You know, I, I had a ton of fun. Uh, for those that haven't found you online yet, please give our audience a handoff to where they can learn more about you and where they can reach you with any questions sure. and comments and so on. Well, you can always reach me on Twitter. Like I'm literally there 26 hours a day, apparently. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, Twitter, it's Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. 
And yeah, all the links to my stuff are essentially there. I have a blog called The Bootstrap Founder. I wrote a book called Zero to Sold and embeddedentrepreneur.com for the embedded entrepreneur. But really go to my Twitter and, and send me a DM. If you have a question, send me a message. I reply to everything. It just might take me a while because I, I think I'm now at like 18,000, 19,000 followers. So I get a lot of DMs, but I do respond to DMs. So just send me a message and, and talk to me about whatever you want to talk to me about. I'm, I'm glad to hear about founders and people building stuff and maybe being scared of building stuff or not finding the, the right thing to build just yet, but I'll help you. I'll, I'll, I'll take, a, take a look at whatever you're doing and give you, give you my honest opinion. Amazing. Th thank you once again, Arvid. That, that, was, that was really nice. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that was the show. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur, maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job, or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next one.